The next words you hear could change your life. That phrase rolls through my mind before I preach. That there is an opportunity here in the preaching of God's Word. Not just to teach you a fact you didn't know. But to say something that could change our lives. A word from God. And when you have the first sermon of the year, it's that fresh slate. That, that, that freshly erased chalkboard. That pad of paper that's not been written on yet. Something new can be said. And I want you to come with that sort of expectation every Sunday. And I will too. Because what we have here is a partnership. You are the hearers, I am the speaker. And we want to hear a word from God that will change our lives. I don't know that I have any, well no, I take that back. I do have enough wisdom to know that I don't have anything brilliant to share with you that comes from me. I was going to leave that in doubt. Oh, I don't know. I might, you know. <laughs> Invest in AT&T. The, uh, the, I don't. But I strive to spend my time hearing God's Word, reading God's Word, so that God's Word then can become the language that we speak. I'm excited about this year in the life of this congregation that this could be the year when works that have been going on for years finally bear fruit. When opportunities that we've been praying about for decades, the doors may finally open. When we are now fully equipped to be the people that God wanted for just such a time as this to accomplish His purposes. But there's one thing that could hinder all of that. Fear. I have some words from Scripture this month in January to help us fear less. And the first word comes from the book of Numbers. Such an odd title for a book of the Bible. We go to read God's Word and we end up with God's numbers. But I want to give you a little background on Numbers 13 because this, this story is a pivotal story. Not just for the book of Numbers, but it's a pivotal story in the history of God's people. What happens and the decision that they make to be faithful or to be fearful impacts generations of God's people. Now here's the background before we get into the story. It's been one year since God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. With signs and powers, with, with plagues, God punished Egypt and delivered His people who were crying out in slavery. And now they've been equipped for a year-long journey through the wilderness. They have no place to call home. They have no land of their own. But they do know of a land that's been promised to their ancestor, Abram. 
And that's where they're going. And now they're on the edge of that land of Canaan. They call it the promised land. Why is it promised? It's not the promised land because it's nice and wonderful. It's promised because God always told His people Israel that this would be their land. And so 12 scouts or spies are sent into the land to check it out. What kind of people live there? What do they do? What are their cities like? What is their life like? What will it be like to take the land? Those spies spend 40 days in that land. This isn't a flyover. This isn't just peeping in with binoculars. They're there. They're living and surviving. If you're going to be there 40 days, then you're going to be looking for the local food. You're going to be looking for ways to to get by, to get along. You're going to be eating, sleeping, drinking, working right there alongside the folks. And they find out that there's amazing produce in that land. And they bring it back. And, and, and the text says that they get grapes. They get a cluster of grapes that's so large that to carry it, they have to have two of them with a pole carrying that. It's like some of you do when you're deer hunting, you know? You've got you to gotta haul that deer out. Well, this is just grapes. So if... If the grapes are that good, just imagine how big the deer are. Okay? This is impressive. This is the background. And now here come these scouts. They're before Moses and Aaron and the people, the leaders of Israel. Everyone's anxiously waiting to hear this report. And the next words that these spies say could change people's lives. They reported to the whole community what they had seen. And they showed them the fruit that they had taken from the land. This was their report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore. And it is indeed a bountiful country. A land flowing with milk and honey. Here's the kind of fruit it produces. But the people, but, but. The people living there are powerful. Their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there. The descendants of Anak. The Amalekites live in the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea along the Jordan Valley. But Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once and take the land, he said. We can certainly conquer it. But the other men who had explored the land with him disagreed. We can't go up against them. They are stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report about the land All among the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there. The descendants of Anak. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers. And that's what they thought too. Then the whole community began weeping aloud. They cried all night. 
Their voices rose in great chorus of protest to Moses and Aaron. If only we had died in Egypt or even here in the wilderness, they complained. Why is the Lord taking us to this country only to have us die in battle? Our wives and our little ones would be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us just to return to Egypt? And so they plotted among themselves. Let's choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down on the ground before the whole community of Israel. Two of the men who had explored the land, Joshua and Caleb, they tore their clothing in frustration and grief. They said to all the people of Israel, The land we traveled through and explored is a wonderful land. And if the Lord is pleased with us, He will bring us safely into that land and give it to us. It's a rich land flowing with milk and honey. Do not rebel against the Lord and don't be afraid of the people of the land. They are nothing more than helpless prey to us. They have no protection, but the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. There's more to the story. Since we're not having an assembly tonight at 6 p.m., that's your homework. Go read the rest of the story. I'm serious. Spend some time reading that. Dwell on that. There was so much there, I can't preach it all. But you need to get together if you want. Come together at the table. Read this. See what happens to the ten spies that said, we can't do this. See what happens to everyone because of this. But what, 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 what's so bad about their fear of overwhelming numbers? What, what's so bad about what they've done, really? I mean, you know, they're just kind of chicken, sort of cowardly, right? Well, there's, there's a lot more going on here than cowardice. A lot more. But fear does play a big part of it. The ten who come back with their report, they have the burden and the responsibility of speaking about what they've seen because they've been traveling through the desert for one year. One year. And they've had one purpose. Get the land. Get the land. God took them out of Egypt. He rescued them from the superpower on earth. He's going to put them in the land that He promised to Abraham. That's all they've been talking about for a year. But now suddenly the narrative has changed. The people come back, and instead of talking about the power of God that released them from Egypt, they're talking about giant myths. It doesn't really matter where you put the emphasis there. They're either talking about giant myths, or they're talking about giant myths. It's the same difference. This Anak, you're like, who is Anak? He's a giant. He's, he's a big guy. And he shows up as kind of a legendary big guy. And, and, and they've heard of him. And you, you pick him up all throughout Scripture. He's over in Deuteronomy. He's over, you know, there's not really not a lot about him except he's big and his kids are big and his family's big. Anak might as well be. I mean, if you're really going to be free with the translation, you know, you would translate it like, you know, the song Big Bad John or something like that. But uh, because Anak's just a tough guy. And they're, and they're saying, Anak's kids live there. And that means that these people are powerful. 
That's how they've chosen to see the situation. And it leads to two words that are the most troubling words in this text. We can't. The two, Joshua and Caleb, have faith, but not just in their ability because they believe that the Lord will keep his promises. They know the stories. They know the history. They don't need myths. The ten probably thought that they were hearing stories or history, but they're really buying into pseudo-history. The two, however, have faith that God will keep his promises, and if they've been at it a year saying, this is what we're going to do, we can do this, Caleb is amazed that the report becomes negative so quickly, and he tries to calm the people down until it finally becomes overwhelming. What we would say is it became viral, and everyone is spreading the bad news, the bad report. It hadn't been verified It's just a bad report. The ten continue to worry. Not only are there giants in the land, but now also there's there's five other nations there. So this isn't just about the Canaanites. You've got all these other people. It'll just become a constant nightmare worrying about who's going to attack us when and where. You know, it's interesting that when they start listing all those nations, we, we studied this in our Wednesday night class. Abram. Abram defeated stronger foes in the land and he only had a force of 318 here's some overwhelming numbers for you in fact who abram defeated abram defeated now i know this was generations before but again they're the ones who say these are the children of anak abram defeated people who defeated anak and his kinfolk and he did it with 318 people You read the first part of Numbers, the force of the 12 tribes was 603,550. That's just the fighting men. That's just those who are eligible for military service. Okay, that's a big number. Yeah, you want me to tell you what that number is? That's Boston. That's Memphis. That's Nashville. That's Oklahoma City. It's pretty close. Now, when you think of it in those terms, what would you be able to do with an army that size? These people, remember how populous they populated, how much they grew in Egypt. And now they've been in the desert for a year. They're ready for anything. But no, the people are too big. And then the people meet to choose a leader who will take them back to Egypt. Did you see what happened there? After the bad report, after Joshua, Caleb, Moses, Aaron, encouraged them, don't do this, don't do this. They try to stop the discussion. They try to change the the narrative, the report. But no, it, it has become viral. It has taken on a life of its own. And finally now the people withdraw and they say, you know what we need to do? We need to have a meeting. We need to have a meeting. We need to get everybody together. We need, to, we need to change things. We need to get everybody together. And we want to hear from everyone. And you know what we need to do? We need to appoint a leader who will take us back to Egypt. That is, do you understand what, that, what they're signifying there? 
They have just institutionalized their defeat. They have formalized failure. What process do they do to to choose a leader who's going to get them back to the land of slavery? We need somebody who doesn't have a a whole lot of vision because um, he's going to be somebody who's going to have to lead us through the desert to go back and petition Pharaoh to be slaves again. But they think that their great plan is the best option before them. It, 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 ought to, it ought to alert us to how quickly we can formalize low expectations and fear. We ought to pay attention to just how much damage can be done. In fact, damage is done through discouragement. You know, this is not the first time they've complained. When you go through numbers, you find out that somebody's always complaining about something. Tired of eating this manna. God sends it from heaven. It kept us alive, but manna. Wish they had something else to eat. God sends them quail so that they'll have meat. Moses' family gets upset. Are Moses and Aaron the only one that can talk to God? I think some of us ought to be able to talk to God too. They're complaining. They have no place to complain. They have no right to complain. But that complaining is leading to discouragement. But this is the discouragement that really turns it around and causes God to pause on giving them the land. Why? I mean, what's so bad about discouragement? Really? Is it that much of a, of a great sin? It is. And I'm going to tell you, Maybe we look down, maybe we don't realize that because we think, well, discouragement, that's not much of a sin. Maybe we've become immune to it and we don't understand just how toxic it truly is. Like lead in the water. You know, there's a lot of concern about lead being in your drinking water these days. I'll tell you what's ironic about that. You get your water, I think most of us, I don't think any of us are running to the well with the bucket anymore, but anyway, you get your water coming into your house through plumbing. The origin of the word plumbing comes from the, Rome, the Latin word lead. Roman plumbing was made out of lead pipes. The toxic element was that which delivered their water. Maybe discouragement, we've We've turned, it, we've turned it into the conduit through which we have discussion. And our discussions and our preaching, our conversations with one another, they may take place in the language of discouragement, and we're not even aware of it. Church, it's time we became aware of it. It's time we became aware of just how destructive it is to be discouraging to ourselves, to one another, even discouraging of God. Because notice how the word courage fits in there. We are throwing courage out when we discourage. Their discouragement did three things. It rejected the Lord's promises and protection. Notice that when the bad report went around, the land was no longer good. This land devours anyone who seeks to take it. God had told them that he was taking them to a place 
A land flowing with milk and honey. A land promised to their ancestors. And now they have changed the story and turned the land into something horrible. It's a lie. It's a lie that they choose to believe because they're afraid. They have institutionalized their defeat. They have made mediocre plans. They have made plans of defeat. And they've even elected a leader to get them back to Egypt. But hey, as long as it looks formal, right? As long as you have enough meetings, it's got to be right, right? As long as you, you know, print enough papers, it's got to be good. They replace hope and courage with fear and complaining. And this is why God is so tested. Because they are off mission. They, God has prepared them. He's brought them there. After a year, after generations in slavery, He's brought them to this place, this land, to fulfill His promise to Abram. And they refuse to be a part of it. That's why discouragement is so dangerous. I hope you've got resolutions. Some of you may not do resolutions. Some of you may. But the new year always provides that that interest in getting started in something. And I'm not going to discourage you in that. You, You may have, I don't know what your resolutions are. I bet some of them are good. Some of them may just be interesting. Maybe you want to uh, spend more time with your family. That would be good. Maybe you want to pray more. Maybe you want to read your scripture more. Well, I've given you homework tonight. You can start there. Maybe you want to control your temper. Maybe you want to control your appetite. Maybe you want to learn a new language. Maybe you want to stop using dirty language. Those are all worthy goals. But whatever it is that you've decided, that or something else, you're going to need to be ready for one thing that's going to disrail you. Derail you. I'm thinking ahead. Discouragement will derail you. You're going to have to be ready. If you're going to accomplish some of these things, you're going to have to be prepared to fear less. Because someone, even if they're well-intentioned, are going to tell you, oh, that's a worthy goal. But listen, don't get disappointed when you fail. (laughs) They've already figured that out, that you're going to fail. You just keep trying, even though it won't work. Oh, thanks for that. And you see, they think, they think that by telling you that, they're going to help you. But really, they're afraid that you're going to get hurt. Not realizing that that may hurt right there. We do that to one another. We do that to ourselves. We even do that as a church. It'd be better if we just kind of stick to the routine. I mean, I'd hate for us to get started on something and then people get discouraged because they fail. Folks, we're going to have to get over the fear of risk. We're going to have to get over the fear of failure. Because when you're walking with God and you're on His mission, there is no failure. Oh, we may not solve everything. We may run up against a wall. We may fail in our efforts. But read Scripture. God has a history and and an ability and a passion for taking failures and turning them into glory. 
What kind of logic was it to take the man who had been persecuting the church and turn him in to one of their top evangelists and church encouragers? Well, if nothing else, it showed that God really can change people. But I'm sure that if God got advice from a lot of church leaders, including people like me, it would have said, gee, I don't know, God, maybe he's not the best choice, you know. People really look down on him. He did kill a few people. That may not be great. Oh, you know, we're going to dream this year, church. I know we're going to dream. And let's, let's do, let's dream. Let's dream the dreams of God. But let's not give in to the fear that will make us discourage one another and frustrate God because we fear our failure and risk more than we fear God. I want to give you one overwhelming number. Because when we, look at the, when we look at what we call the stats or the data, I mean, we like our numbers. Pick up your bulletin today. It's got numbers in it. And those numbers are, are, are good. They're accurate. They're true. Okay? They are what they are. You've got attendance numbers. You've got giving numbers. You've got um, dates, numbers. There's all sorts of numbers in there. But here's the thing. Those numbers only have meaning if we begin with faith. I told my class this morning that when I go to conferences this year and people ask me how many uh, members we have at West Ark, I'm going to say none. How do you like that? How many members is your church? See, the preachers at conferences always do that, right, David? You remember? They always do. How many members do you have? I'm like, why, why does that matter? Yeah. So I'm going to say none. I say, we have somewhere between 500 and 600 disciples. Yeah. Because 500 to 600 disciples, they can do a lot. I'm a member at Planet Fitness. You can tell how that's going. I've been one time. But I'm a member. I got one overwhelming number for you. And you need to keep this in mind whenever we look at other numbers. Because, see, we'll look at numbers. I'm not going to give you that overwhelming number yet because I, wa- I want you to understand why. Because we, we have a tendency to look at numbers and look at statistics, and then we will put our own report on it. That number's not as big as it was last week. That number's not as good as it was this week. That number's bigger than it was last week, but I don't know. We, we'll, we'll, we can find discouragement in anything if we allow it. And my question to you is, why? Now, understanding a number, if we're behind in budget, we're behind in budget. That's a problem to solve. If we've got members, disciples, who aren't joining in the disciple gathering of worship with us, then that's, that's something we need to check into. But if we just look at generic numbers, we're not going to understand the point of all of it. You need this one overwhelming number, and this number is the number one. We could spend all the time we want coming up with all the reasons we might fail as a church. We could call a meeting any, any day, any night this month. And if we handed out uh, postcards and 
had everybody write on it or you just brought or you emailed it in or whatever you want to do. And, and, and the question that I asked you was, I want you to list all the things that we lack and all the things that we need. You know what? I bet we could come up with some big lists. We need more income. We need, we need this. We need uh, uh, new members. We, 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 need a, we need a better preacher. I mean, all these things that you could just put on there. You know, just name it all. And those might be reasons that we're going to fail or can't do it, why we can't. But are we focused on all the reasons we might fail? Or are we focused on one mighty God? Caleb's attitude was he didn't care how many giant anaks there were out there. He knew about one giant God. And that's all he needed to know. And and I'm I'm not scolding you. Please don't hear me as scolding you. I can do this myself, this language of cynicism. And I'm resolved not to let that be the language that I speak. I want, that, I want the language that we speak to be the language of the one mighty God who can transform failure into, into renewal, who can transform discouragement into courage. Are we more impressed by one or two or three or a few negative responses? Or are we more impressed by the one truth? It's a truism of human behavior. I I don't know why it is. I talk to other preachers and it's true too. You know, they say, you can preach a sermon. 20 people come up to you and they say, oh, great sermon, great sermon, great sermon. One person comes to you and says, you got it wrong. And you'll focus on that got it wrong all week. I guess maybe because they take it personally, you know. I don't do that, so don't even bother. Uh, When I've preached a sermon, I've done the best I can. It's up to you to figure it out. If I got it wrong, fine. Figure out what's right, and then you benefit. But the thing is, even when it comes to criticism about us in anything, any of you, ask yourself, Do you tend to focus on the one or two negative voices even though everyone else and the people who are most important to you are telling you good things, telling you the truth? There's one truth. There is an absolute truth in the universe. God is the source of that truth. When Pilate asked Jesus, what is the truth? The answer was Jesus. He himself is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, are we going to listen to all of the negative voices, whether the minority or whether they're the majority, or are we going to listen to the voice of the one truth? God loved you so much that he gave his life for you. He gave his son for you so that you could live eternally. And Jesus wants to be your Lord. Jesus wants to lead you into abundant life. Why do you need to listen to anything else? And as we've already said, we can look at all the numerical data, we can look at all the information, and you know what? It's good to gather information. I love information. I love researching. I love discovering, you know, what what works and what doesn't. But at the end of the day, there's one mission. One mission. And if I don't turn all of that research into action, what good is it done? I've learned a little bit, but how has it changed my life? 
How has it changed your life? Church, we can gather here every first day of the week. We can talk about things we know. We can try to keep the numbers up. But unless we trust in one mighty God and own that one truth, we won't have a mission. Whose lives will we change? There's opportunities all around us. It's just like we're going into another land. And we can look out there and we can say, well, no, I don't want to talk to anybody about the gospel. Why? Well, because they're going to be mean. They're going to reject me. How do you know that? How do you know that? Or is that just what you're afraid of? I do believe that this will be an overwhelming year. And I believe that God has plans. And they're not secret. God's bringing in a kingdom. And every day of this year, we're getting closer to that kingdom that's coming in. And God wants us to live in that kingdom now. But sometimes our fear of the cost of living in that kingdom and the effort of living in that kingdom, even though it's wonderful and it's blessed to live in that kingdom. I mean, more blessed than we know. We change the story around and we make Christianity into drudgery. Just like the people said that the promised land is not a land of milk and honey, but it's a devouring, eat you up kind of a land. Sometimes we make Christianity into an eat you up kind of life. When really, it's a great adventure. Because we're serving God. And, and let me ask you this. What else can you do in your life where your failures can be transformed into God's glory? What else is that possible in? I think you're going to be hard-pressed to find anything that is as similar as following God. Let's fear less. How may I encourage you? How may we encourage you to fear less? At the end of our sermons, we have a time where we will speak a word of encouragement to anyone who knows it. So if you need that encouragement, if you need to start your discipleship in 2017, we invite you to come pray with elders here or in that private room back there. It has pews just like these in it. Let's stand. Let's sing together.